HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Why is Heritage Radio Network important to you? HRN is very nostalgic to go into because it's really the only place that you have this really warm, homey experience to watch people get together and talk about the things that really make a difference. It's really fun when I ask guests, do you want to be on Heritage? And they're like, Alberta's yes, 100%. I believe that we all are really trying to bring people together. I think getting more people excited about good, local, well-crafted food and away from big ag and tasteless commodity food is so important. It's kind of an honor to be sitting there with somebody in a space where so many other people have sat. Join HRN's vibrant community of thoughtful eaters. Become a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And today we have indeed... It got a journey through culinary history all the way from 1686 in dishes from restaurants. It's, we're going to be talking about a new book uh, with my guest, Christine Mulkey. The book is Signature Dishes That Matter, published by Fiden Press. It's a global celebration of restaurant dishes that have defined the course of culinary history. And it's told through all of these some of, well, not every dish, but most iconic dishes, the most iconic dishes from the past three centuries. It spotlights 240 dishes from 207 chefs from 26 different countries. And as I said, it spans 300 years from the first gelato dish served at a restaurant in 1686 to an elegantly grilled whole turbo in 2018. So I guess that means there are going to be more to come. But why is the question is why? Why do signature dishes matter? And what exactly is the significance of a signature dish? What is a a signature dish? Uh, Mitchell Davis wrote the foreword to the book, uh, Mitchell from the James Beard Foundation. And he said, signature dishes afford more than just a taste of something new. They are the flavor of history. My guest, as I mentioned, is Christine Mulkey. She's one of seven curators or 
culinary experts uh, who selected the signature dishes that went into this book. And she, in fact, refers to the signature dishes as touchstone dishes. Christine is a writer and an editor-at-large at Bon Appetit and founder of the food consultancy Bureau X. She's a former food editor of the New York Times Magazine and has co-authored books with Eric Repair and Aldo Somme of Le Bernardin, David Kinch of Manresa, and Eric Werner of Hartwood. In addition to being one of the team of culinary experts who helped make this book, she wrote the culinary descriptions and histories of the dishes and provided the context and the connection between the chefs and the culinary movements, culinary movements that in fact may have been inspired by these dishes or that the dishes inspired. Welcome, Christine. Hi, it's so great to be here. Thanks Thanks for having me. This is quite a book and an ominous task, I have to say, at best, (laughs) that you took on, that you all took on, selecting dishes that changed history. Whose idea was this book? How did it all come about? Well, there are differing theories. Uh, Keith Fox, who's the head of Fiden, uh, swears that it came from a dinner he had with John Taylor. Yes, that John Taylor of Duran Duran, who said, (laughs) wouldn't it be great if you just kind of did it a book about all the best dishes ever, but apparently, simultaneously, Amelia Taranyi, who's such an important part of Fiden and has brought in so many of the great chef books that they've done over the years, was the, was working on a similar idea. So, you know, it depends on who you're going to ask at the holiday party this year. <laughs> and how many drinks they've had. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Or the chicken or the egg, you know, which came first. That's, that's always the question. Uh, well, I guess, you know, start at the beginning. What, you know, what... In your words, your thoughts, what really is a signature dish? I think each of the curators might have had a different definition, and it was fascinating to read the each each writer's intro, or each curator's introduction and, and their criteria. For me, it was really something that it didn't just move the needle, it sort of set the needle, it set the point, whether that's in relation to uh, plating, technique, uh, ingredient combination, things like that. It's a point after which things in food were different. It it affected how how people at home cooked as well, not only just restaurants. Yeah, and and how they went to restaurants or, or, you know, I mean, Cafe Cafe Procope from 1686, where the gelato was, that was the first cafe in Paris, and that was a confluence of different factors. Before then, it was, you know, coffee was served at street fairs. Um, It wasn't served. Cafes didn't exist. I mean, it's for me, it's really the first dot in a series of dots that can be connected throughout uh, you know, if if not decades, centuries. Well, it's almost a kind of a broad stroke history mm. of restaurants as well, because you have restaurants from many different countries when they first started to appear. I mean, actual restaurants where people sat down and were served and dined, and not just a, a boarding house or a cafe, right? Um, but an actual restaurant. Uh, well, the next question really is how did. And who did? How did? How did one assemble all of you culinary experts? I mean, it's it's quite an interesting list. It's great. So Emily Takudis, who is the editor of this book and a dream to work with, reached out to writers around the world, uh, such as myself and Howie Khan in the U.S., Susan Jung in Hong Kong, Pat Nurse, who's in Australia, Andrea Petrini in Europe, uh, Diego Salazar in South America, and Richard Vines in the UK. So, you know, 
they attempted to cover the waterfront, so to speak. Obviously, there are entire continents that are missing, unfortunately, yeah. but hopefully that means I get to do another book. <laughs> well, and it would be a different, I guess you could focus on different uh, sections of of cooking as well, different right. different types of restaurants. Right. So our, our first ask was to contribute what we thought were 50 signature dishes that change gastronomy. So we had to provide the year in which the dish was created, which was hard and not something just you, you know, you throw off the top of your head. Yeah. And then to write a quick summary of why we thought that dish was influential. And then these all went in, you know, 50 times X went into the hopper and some magical spreadsheet popped out, you know, the winners. And obviously there are instances and chefs for whom there were multiple, multiple entries. And then it was either the one who had the most or the ones, you know, sometimes they would go back to the curators and say, okay, Ferran Adria has 10 dishes or Alain Ducasse has 15 dishes. Which of these do you really think? And sometimes there were disagreements and, and we would all ultimately reach a conclusion. So there was a computer and then there were humans. Well, then there was some fact-checking, I'm sure, that had to go on. Oh, my God. Don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you come, someone comes up with a dish and says, yeah, but, but so-and-so was cooking that yeah. years ago. No, right? and I mean, uh, when the book was done in a pretty compressed timeline, um, the Internet is a powerful tool, but the internet also provides more theories than it answers. Yes, a lot of fuzzy, so fuzzy info out there. There, there is a fair <laughs> amount of, of, you know, not hedging in the book, but there, there are often, com, you know, competing theories and yeah. stories and well, people taking credit. I mean, I, I don't doubt that for a second. I mean, I mean it's just, the, I've, just in reading it, I'm thinking, wait a minute. Right. You know? I mean, if you <laughs> ask Jean-Georges von Gerichten, who invented the chocolate souffle cake, he's you know, going to take credit. Um, but the dish appeared almost simultaneously in La Yole, France with Michelle Bras. So, you know, do yeah. we get them into the ring to duke it out? Maybe that could, yeah. that, oh, that would have been a great book party idea, actually. <laughs> well, and it also shows the influences um, of the t at the time of what was, you know, the thought process with a lot of these chefs that was going on and, you know, what they were doing. But I can see where it brought out some problems. Uh, for those who um, have not yet had a chance to see it in the bookstores, it's um, beautiful. It I have to an, say, it is an absolutely it's beautiful a charmer. Book. Our engineer Matt just came in and he said, "Oh my God, look at the marbling on the on the front pages." Of the yeah, book pages. and it has very fancy marbling yeah. on the spine or on the end pages, and, and um, really charming illustrations. The illustrations—that's what I wanted to get to. I mean, as much as the food, also in many instances. The serving dishes as well uh -huh. that are and um, Adriano Rampazzo uh, was the artist, the illustrator chosen from San Paolo. And talk about a hard job. I mean, it's hard enough trying to compress the history of a dish, you know, from seventeen. 72 into 250 words, you know, it's also really hard to illustrate, to illustrate, illustrate that dish, you yeah. know, to do watercolors when there are no extant photographs. Um, but he also managed to make them lovely and delicious, but also truly illustrate what they are. That's a really hard brief. When they told me they were doing illustrations, I just thought, oh, no. no. And, I, I, and I'm mesmerized by some of them because you wonder, well, now, did he have someone, a, was there a cooking team that actually prepared each dish? Well, the, no. And the fascinating thing about him is he's a former chef, so he really brings an extra level of detail uh. and, and, and interest and delight to, uh, to the 
to the mix. And I mean, I, I would love to buy one of these from him, but honestly, I can't decide which one it would be. You know, I can't even decide which one I want to talk about here I on know. this long show. But um, they, they, are, they will fascinate people, I'm sure, because there are things that are as common that we think is part of a regular repertoire as Waldorf salad and tartatin. But they've got histories that go back to 1800 and, you know, and, and the early 1900s. Um, well, you did the culinary write-ups for all of these as, as well as choosing a lot of the dishes. That, did you, requ- did you require of the rest of the team to give you a set of notes of why, what, what was important about this dish? Well, luckily, each of the curators had submitted a precy about why, you know, they went to bat for the dish. They had to prove the dish. And, you know, some people sent a couple of sentences or someone like Howie Kahn really dove into it and laid it out in my summaries, because we didn't know what these summaries were going to be used for. Um, I... I really wanted to say this dish is important because you can also see it in these dishes from these, you know, for me it needed to be like at least three other chefs that were connected or referencing this dish, whether it was, you know, David Kinch referencing uh, Michelle Braz Gargouillou and then other people referencing, you know, then Paul Liebrand picked it up. It's just, um, it was endless. It's hard. So I was very grateful to have other people's opinions. Um, And then I was able to... My assistant had the brilliant idea of posting on the NYU Food Studies job board for interns. And we had a very small budget. And I said, you know, I can give you a very small amount of money, but I can also take you to tea and give you job advice and, you know, try to connect you with people uh, as sincere thanks. So just dividing these. And so they would do as much research as possible, whether it's through the Internet or going to the Fails Library, which was so magical at NYU. Um, I did find one woman who w- just completed dual degrees in food studies and library sciences. So I really had died and, and gone to heaven. Right? And we would, <laughs> she still had library access, so we would sit there and call up all these old books. So that was amazing. Um, and But then I still had to synthesize all of this information, fact check it, and make sure that it fit on the page. All right. I like how you... In, in sort of trying to describe and get to the essence of what a signature dish is, that you called it a touchstone dish. And what do you mean? What did you mean when you said that? When you um, called just, it that? Just the first, the first point of reference. Again, that first dot on the on the circle, um, or the you know, I keep thinking about what is that thing, the hundredth butterfly, or you know, is the first butterfly that flapped. I would say his wings, because unfortunately many of these are men, but they've flapped its wings. Um, so, And it's the one that we return to. It's the base of it. It might have changed almost unrecognizably since, but it's it's the first point of it. But so then chefs after that kept referring to that dish. Exactly. In some way or another, taking bits and pieces of it or paying homage to it and taking some some other Yeah, because, I mean, chefs, chefs are inherently creative people they can't help but put their own you know unless it's very winking reference I mean I actually it's it's been really fun one of my other for Bureau X I consult and work with restaurant groups and I'm working with a restaurant that's opening in January and I was given the brief for the food and I said oh my gosh can we please have souffle suissesse on the menu uh, it was served at Le Gavroche starting in the 60s it's still their number one selling dish 
It's so delicious. It's so dreamy. I've been dying to taste this because, of course, working on this book, I develop insane cravings. Like, must have. I, <laughs> I would kill. Just reading it, I, I would kill for an Arnold, uh, an omelet Arnold Bennett. Um, and actually, the souffle suissesse is going on the menu at this restaurant. And, and the chef in charge there, Rob Akins, actually had worked at Le Gavroche. Um, well, so a it's a nice coincidence. Yeah, <laughs> so it's it's really fun to see that. But he does a very straightforward homage. It's not it's not a wink or a nudge. It is truly as as it was presented. Well, back to the influence I'll call these dishes influencers as mm-hmm. we do now very on good. social media, right? Um, the they really did sort of turn the culinary world on its heels a little bit. Um, each and we're talking all the way, you know, for all through all those centuries, there was one. Every now and then, a particular dish comes along, and mm, makes who sit up and take notice? The diners, other chefs. Uh, well, I mean, the diners certainly. I mean, do you remember your first pork bun at Sambar? Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a, that's a big moment. Um, I can think of many examples, but yeah, it's it's the introduction of, of something new, whether it's a it's a new way of formatting a familiar dish. I mean, look at what Danielle Ballou did with the DB burger. Right. You know, it's a burger. We also have the McDonald's, I have the Big Mac in there, but it's... I was surprised to see that, actually. I know. That, that was a Pat Nurse. That was genius. Yeah. I think that was Pat. Um, you know, it's just completely making it new, and the diners react to it. That meaning they get more customers. There's word of mouth. Um, you know, many of these dishes predate not only social media but the oh, me- you know food yeah. press. So, and they did have larger kitchens, and the chefs were going out and opening their own restaurants or working in other kitchens and bringing these dishes with them. So I would say it was an almost parallel track. Mm-hmm. Well, not only predating food press and obviously social media, because mm. um, it was that long ago, uh, it sort of predated people, well, in America, certainly, in other countries, their, I don't want to say obsession with food, but mm-hmm. as today's society, how you know we seem to be so obsessed with each meal and a special meal, but... Uh, certainly in France and and Italy and some of the other countries. I mean, mm-hmm. there are 26 different countries represented Yeah, here. and they touch upon all different things. I mean, there's class. You know, the, some of these dishes are, are workers' dishes. Some of the – there's a dish from Rome um, from, you know, the region near the abattoirs, and, and they – and it's the offal, and so that's what the mm-hmm. workers are given to supplement their pay, and so the restaurants there specialize in that type of food because that's what they can afford – um, or and that ma- restaurant is still in existence exactly. today. Exactly, <laughs> or Mapo Dofu, you know, which was on the way of, I want to say, one of the oil sellers' routes. And, you know, so they had tons of oil. I mean, they're just... But then you have the fine food and the, the rich food and a lot of in America, you know, because restaurants really weren't a thing until later. Um, it's hotel food. Right. And it, it's also, in, in a way, so there's class, there's race, there's gender, there's also... Um, there's also just the the history of the restaurant because because in America not only were hotel restaurants the leading restaurants but the Mater D's were actually coming up with some of these dishes like these dishes are not attri- some of these dishes are not attributed to the actual chef they're di- attributed to the Mater D and it was fun to see I'm forgetting the man's name but the, it was so and so of the Waldorf and he yeah. had a cookbook you know there were cookbooks from people who weren't actually chefs and I thought that was really interesting yeah and it's it's interesting because in, so many times on this show. 
different topics will reference the fact that the chefs were not really known. It, right. You know, the owner of the restaurant, or as you mentioned, the, you know, the maitre d', you know, the, the manager um, uh, was the one that people were aware of. Oh, here it's, it is. Sorry, it's Oscar, Oscar. Shirky of yep. the Waldorf Hotel. And um, then had a little cafe named after him, Oscars. Exactly. Right? I mean, I just, you know, it would be like... Spanky Van Dyke, the amazing, one of the amazing people you see when you first walk into Frenchette, it would be, you know, Spanky salad. And that just wouldn't happen today. Right. I think Spanky could, ooh, I found a mistake. Sorry. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Editing, she's ever the editor, right? <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, never not. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it was just really, really fascinating. Was there, I mean, there are so many that uh, we both brought our books today because there are, you know, 247 illustrations and histories of dishes throughout 300 years. Uh, to ask you, is there one in particular that kind of, you know, made you sit up and take note? Uh, there are many, I'm sure. But there, there's, are, yeah. there are a couple that you can, that spring to mind that really you had never known about or thought about? Well, I mean, the souffle suissesse, certainly. The, I keep talking about the omelet Arnold Bennett, which I'm fascinated by. It's, it's um, kind of revolting, but in a delightful way. I wish they, if French had ever does brunch, I wish they would put it on the menu. It's sort of, it's a souffle. It's sort of a souffle-style omelet upon which is smoked haddock, I believe, and then a sauce that's a combination of bechamel and... Uh, hollandaise that's put on top and then it's run under the salamander. I mean, you die. But that also was neat because it falls into this cool subset of dishes that were sort of demanded by regulars. Mm -hmm. um, Arnold Bennett is a novelist and he was living at the hotel, I believe it was Savoy at the time, and this is what he wanted to eat. And I love that, you know, picky demanding uh, loyalists are so in some ways demanding sort of like eggs Benedict was created right. that way. Um, so that really stuck out. Some of the things that really moved me, um, that were kind of sneakers were dishes that I didn't know at all from the UK and from Ireland, um, and chefs that I wasn't familiar with. And there's just a certain nobility to them. Um, there was a chef in the UK at one of the last of the sort of grand French kitchens, because we also, as Americans, don't necessarily think that great cuisine coming out of the UK from sort of, you know, the 50s onward, um, and still in some part today, is French food. It's fine French food. Um, and there was this one chef at, at this hotel that I, I was very moved by his story. I have a couple of chefs. I text frequently with uh, David Kinch of Manresa since mm -hmm. we did the book together. And he's someone who's really steeped and someone I went to a lot. I did go to a couple of chefs when I was putting together the preliminary list of 50. I was like, okay, David, you know, you're somebody who, when you were a young chef in New York in the 80s, you would spend all of your money and go to the foreign bookstore, cookbook store in the basement of Rockefeller Center and spend all your money on these books. Like, who are the people who really shaped you? Or Eric Repair, who are the people who really shaped you coming up? And um, following those things, and I just, I found myself texting David some of these words of wisdom from some of these great chefs from, you know, the 1700s or even the 1960s. It was really fun. Interesting, yeah. Um, there were there are some that of course um, have as you say they've been repeated by other chefs and and then suddenly appear on on plates and restaurants in many different iterations not necessarily identifiable as the original dish um, and yet you know that they, they wouldn't have come about had it not been for this original signature 
dish. Um, and you mentioned something else that um, uh, about um, a dish. Well, there's so many dishes. I, I mean, know. I'm losing count already. <laughs> I can't look at the book because I just want to sit here get, and read. Yes, and I that's know. not fun I mean, for anyone. And then something as simple, and I was surprised to see this. I was surprised to see his name here in the book. And you were talking about the English food. Mm. Simon Hopkinson um, from the UK at, sure. at the Bend of Saffron Mashed Potatoes. I mean, something as... You would think something as simple, right? You know, well, right. Joel Robichon made his name off mashed potatoes as well. So here we have saffron mashed potatoes, and I, I was I was very intrigued by that. And uh, the list just goes on and no, on. No, I know. And there there are some great sandwiches that came out of the UK. Well, the sandwiches and the sandwiches keep being re-mentioned uh, in different forms. But the club sandwich yeah. came out a couple of times, and that was. I'm thinking, hmm. How did that come about? And, of course, there was a little fuzzy history there as well right? Um, as to where it came about. But one would think something as simple as that, you never think how that really altered right. the path of culinary history. Yes, and there are also the dishes. So in addition to the subset of um, you know demanding regulars, there are also the accidents, the happy accidents, yeah. and also the closing time accidents and the running out of things accident. And sometimes those dovetail with picky eaters. You know, the invention of nachos, or Caesar salad, or things like that, that involved, according to, you know, those have really murky origin stories, but, you know, Caesar salad, it was apparently 4th of July weekend, and it's in in a restaurant in, I believe, Tijuana or Monterey, Mexico, and some drunk Americans, you know, came down from L.A. for the weekend, and they were closed, and they'd run out of food, so they just threw something together in a bowl and tried to make it look fancy. <laughs> or nachos, there were some women from a Texas Air Force base who were shopping, you know, doing a day of shopping and stop by and, and they just sort of put together whatever they had. Or I, I mean, so it's just, it's really, it's really, or I look at something like, um, Jeremy, Lee, Jeremy Lee's smoked eel sandwich from Quo Vadis, And it, it really is two pieces of toast with, you know, basically butter and smoked eel. And that seems like a sort of a chef's treat or a little private right. snack. And yeah. that's something that he can't keep, he can't keep it off the menu. The person comes in and sees what he's eating, and I'll have that. Right? Exactly. <laughs> I'll have what she's having. Yeah, interesting. Mm. Well, the real treat in this, if for people who are so curious, and but the other thing is going through it and saying, oh, how many of these have you traveled and had? You right. Know, there are a lot of, of, of those in there. And then the, the treat is, you know, they identify the restaurant they originally came from and the chef and, um, and, then, and the date. But in the end of the book, there's one whole giant section, and that's the recipe. So one who gets the book can actually recreate these. Now, how, how difficult was that in many instances? God bless Fiden. I had nothing to do with that section. <laughs> they really they farmed it out. Huh? And, you know, some of them, I mean, what are you going to say for the gelato recipe from 1686, which, you know, came about because the owner was actually Sicilian and his grandfather who was a fisherman had actually managed to create a machine that made gelato because typically in Sicily ices were made from the snow of Mount Etna which was present all year and it was a very, very royal treat and his grandfather had gotten a royal patent our king's patent on this machine and he brought it uh, to Paris and was able to make that How, what's the recipe for that? You know? Yeah, right. 
go to go to first go to Mount Etna, right. Etna and gather some gather ye some snow. Exactly, <laughs> and luckily, uh, Fiden, you know, has published the cookbooks for many of the great chefs who are included in here. Whether it's Magnus Nilsson, Rene Redzepi, um, Massimo Batura, they they have these recipes already. Right. So. Right. There was one now, and I'm and I'm blanking on the name, and hopefully you'll remember who would not divulge the recipe yet because he is yet to write a book and he wants the book his book to be where the recipe first oh, appears. Oh, that's some inside um, knowledge. Yeah, I didn't know well, that. Well, it's in there and I and I'll find it by, okay. the, by the by the second half. Okay. So, in fact, what we're going to do is take a little break um, and then we're going to come back and talk about a couple of the specific dishes and stories for you when we come back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Hi, we're back, and it, I have to tell you, 247 dishes that have changed the course of history can really be confusing when you're trying to, you know, to chart that course, and, but that's an interesting theory in itself, I mean, like, how, that these dishes actually change the course of cooking, or not necessarily always cooking, right, but it could be plating, um, type of of ingredients, you know, new introductions of ingredients and and um, and preparations, but still there are things that that are quite, you know, shocking. I mean, yes, there's the the you know the chemical spheres and things that are coming out with a lot of the, you know, the new that became the the cuisine moderne or the, you mm-hmm. know, the modernist cooking. Um, those yes, they everyone had to sit up and take note. You had a an egg inside of the sphere of some type of gel, and how did the chef do it? And, well, it was interesting, and people n- then learned to do it. But I don't know that it's a lasting thing, you know, in in culinary preparations, and certainly not for the home cook. <laughs> well, they but, do have a home spherification kit that you can buy from the El Bui. Um They're still making those, so if you want to, you know, You can make your own spears, exactly. spears, right? Yeah. But then there's something like Thomas Keller's um, Caviar and Pearls, mm-hmm. and that's um, that made the book, and that's very special. Sure. And it's gone on for, he's ha- he served that first at French Laundry, correct? And, and then he's still, if still you're, doing if, it. Yes, if you go to Per Se today, you'll, you'll have that 
But it is interesting to see the return to these things. You know, when we were going through the molecular gastronomy phase, um, and it was so interesting to learn about the actual process of coming up with these things and, you know, how Wiley Dufresne came up with his shrimp noodles. And, I mean, his mind is Yeah, just you can talk about that because that's very interesting. So that's incredible. Like, well, what can we make a noodle out of? If we, you know, if we add X to Y, we can make a noodle out of it. So what should we try and what is this referencing? And it was just that kind of thing is so neat. But at the same time... Not everyone wants to eat that. It doesn't always make you feel good. You know, it's sort of limited. And then it's just fun to see the pendulum swing back. And then when Daniel Rose opened Le Cuckoo in Manhattan, and suddenly people were interested in mother sauces again. You know, yeah. things that we thought Escoffier, that they were really dusty and boring. And, and you know, because we had come to really celebrate the perfect heirloom vegetable and the sort of cult of Chez Panisse, where things don't really have sauces anymore. So... You know, touchstones in that things come and they go and they come back again. Right, right. And, and things that, as I said in, in, earlier in the show, things that we today perhaps take for granted. Sure. Vichyssoise, for instance. <laughs> I mean, Louis Diat uh, from the Ritz-Carlton Hotel and in 1917 um, just created this, this cold dish. Um, and it's something that has endured. I mean, it, or even know. green goddess dressing. I mean, yeah. growing up in the Midwest, that came from that came out of a bottle. That's right. That didn't have herb, what, well, herbs. Well, you know, that's a, that's a whole other interesting concept too. Um, it, the book obviously talks about shaping uh, restaurant, uh, the restaurant cooking and industry mm-hmm. and culinary history, but there was commercial value. In some of these things, I'm thinking of another one that was a, oh, the chiffon cake. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy who was that? That was in the, what was it, 1800s or late, early 1900s? He sold the recipe to yes, <laughs> to a, a, cake, a cake box manufacturer. I think Duncan Hines. Duncan or something. Hines. He finally yeah. gave it away. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So these things, you know, shaped a lot of a lot of different avenues in the food world. Um, uh, Can I go back to one of my crushes, actually? So I was so fascinated, and I'm sure, um, you know, better learned culinary historians know about Alexis Sawyer. I didn't know about him. Uh, He was a chef in the UK, and um, he really, he was a French-born chef, and he really became sort of their first celebrity chef, um, did multiple cookbooks, and cooked at London's Reform Club, and cooked for 2,000 guests at Queen Victoria's coronation. But he also did other things. He invented something called the magic stove, which is sort of a portable catering stove. He um, was on the battlefront with Florence Nightingale during the Crimean War. He huh. helped establish soup kitchens and helped feed people during the Irish famine. Um, you know, he's just such an interesting, multifaceted character, and I'd never heard of him. And in this age of celebrity chefs and, and what is a celebrity chef, you know, here's someone who is really, I guess he could be likened to Jose Andres. Maybe Jose has has been reading about Alexis. Okay, well, I'm going to tell you, I was going to ask you about this one in particular, mm-hmm. so I'm so glad you picked it. Continue. And, and you know, he wrote a book in 1849. It had 2,000 recipes. I love the name. It's the Gastronomic Regenerator. I mean, it's like something you do for better abs. But, um, yeah, there are just things like that. But, that but really... talk about the one that, that put him on the map as far as this book is concerned. Talk about that oh, one. Oh, Lamb Cutlets Reform. So that was made for London's Reform Club in the 1830s weren't able to get a precise date and some of these things it really makes you think about how our palates have changed certainly um this had 
So this was made. Uh, this was made by a club member for a late night request. Again with the late night request. Um, they were made with mutton, and then the taste for young lamb grew. They weren't eating just mutton all the time like at Keen's. Um, and I love this. He preferred the flavor of sheep raised in the South Downs to those from Wales. Uh, he made cutlets, and then he actually created the chop because he left a section of the bone exposed. And then he coated them in breadcrumbs and uh, chopped ham, and then he put them on mashed potatoes, but then he made this crazy sauce. It was like a million different stocks. Um, consomme, secondary sauces, herbs, vinegars, and pre preserved tomatas. Um, they, and then there was also like this sweet element, and so crazy. But then recently, uh, Mark Hicks was made it using beef stock, tarragon vinegar, and red currant jelly. Oh. Yeah. And yet, and, and also the fact that he breaded it, I mean, part of the, the crust was chopped up ham. Which yes. Is interesting. And to today's, with the illustration that was, was made for this dish, it, today's diner looks at it and goes, eh, this lamb right. chops on mashed potatoes. Right, right. But, I mean, at a point when there weren't really lamb chops, it was mutton, you know, huge chunks of mutton. And a cutlet, only a, a cutlet of it. You would not serve the yeah, bone it was on it. Thin. it would just so, be, right. yeah, there's a lot you take for granted. And I also yeah. love the following um, recipe um, Jean-Louis uh, Jean Francois Collinet at the Pavillon Henri IV uh, in France in 1837. And he invented, well, he did invent sauce bernays uh, just outside of Paris after the French Revolution. But then he made these pommes souffle. There were these ladies and they were taking, I think, the first little sort of train journey to the suburb outside of Paris. And they were going to be late. And he was preparing lunch for them. So he started the potatoes, but then he learned that they were going to be late. So once they finally got there, he threw them into, I think they were Rothschilds, actually. Going, it was a, oh, it was the new passenger steam train linking Paris to Saint-Germain, which is, I guess, considered the suburbs at the time. Took them out of the oil, and he threw them back in, and the steam and the temperature difference puffed them into these beautiful little perfect, almost madeleines of, of you know, transparent uh, potato goodness. And I just love those kind of happy accidents. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, many young French chefs have been cursing them because they're really hard <laughs> to make consistently. There's a lot thrown away, but just, yeah. Another... And as a young cook, it's one of those recipes that you sort of feel you have to prove your mettle by yes. making these, and they never Yes, and then, you know, right. the method was taken by one of his protégés who uh, opened Antoine's restaurant in New Orleans in 1840, where they're still served today. I love that. And then, you know, they are actually the most traditional recipe in Nathan Mervold's modernist cuisine. So again, when we talk about touch points, through lines, connecting the dots, it's dishes like these that you think, you know, came out of thin air. So from the 1837 to 2018, right. you know, that chef was thinking, well, that was you know, right. science fiction, modern history. All because of a rich person and a late train. Right, and a request. <laughs> okay, so there's so much we could talk about and and about food and and how it affects changes in, in actually in, in the culinary world. But more than that, um, what I want to ask you is what, really do you identify as a difference between a trend mm. and a signature dish or a game changer dish? Sure. Uh, well, because luckily we've had history on our side for most of these. Obviously it got trickier as we got into the aughts and you notice that the last dish here is from 2018. Right. It's dishes that influenced other chefs and even complete restaurants and that made the jump across continents. You know, there are things that continue. Um, 
As opposed to a trend, you know, will molecular cuisine prove to have been simply a trend or is it something that continues? I mean, I know that there's sort of this return to foam, uh, which just kills me. (laughs) I mean, like, oh, right, it's about time. It's like, oh, right, we're wearing fanny packs, so that cue the foam. (laughs) But um, it's really hard now because it'll be interesting to see. I mean, we could do, you know, influencer dishes that matter, Instagram dishes that matter, and that's a very different category because that's based on the eye. It's not based on the, the full restaurant experience, um, which which involves context, which is really important. You know, it's easy for a chef to look at an image of a dish and say, oh, I'd like to copy that. And they're in, you know, Indiana and they can visibly or physically, but is the taste, are the taste and the experience really real? And therefore, right. will that continue? Will that endure? Will that move on? Um, food is in a very different place now. It is, indeed. You don't have to necessarily make that trek to travel miles and miles and hardships on, on modes of transportation to taste a chef's particular creation. I mean, but still, as you said, it so much of that taste depends on place. Yes, place yes. and atmosphere. I mean, time will tell. It will, indeed. Um, I notice a lot of the people who were contributors to the book were... Um, several of them, not all of them, um, were members of the world's 50 best restaurants. Was Mm -hmm. that, I mean, coincidental or or intentional? I mean, obviously, they they knew a lot of restaurants around the world. Well, I think think that that is, you know, a key point because they have traveled to these restaurants and tasted these dishes. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's important. And they know other chefs, and they've done many interviews with those chefs, and they know which chefs and which dishes are important to them. Um, as a result, yeah, it's it's really mind-boggling to read some of the seemingly commonplace foods that were game changers. Sure, uh, Hawaiian pizza. Uh, yeah, right. Canadian. <laughs> right. I didn't know that. Know that. <laughs> and uh, and and yet some that you know, maybe you've never heard of, and you wondered, mm. ooh, what, how, why was that so? You know, right. So formative in in a chef's experience, but. Interesting. I I highly recommend people who want to see this. It's really, as was mentioned by one of the blurbs, a comprehensive survey of of restaurant dishes, of culinary history, because so much was altered by by famous chefs, by restaurant dishes. Mm-hmm. And again, the book is called Signature Dishes That Matter. And Christine Mulkey, I thank you so much. I just you have to just come back again, and we'll go through another. 20 of the 247 and maybe after several visits we'll get through the whole i mean (laughs) let's let's do it again if you can help research we i am i am would love to do this again it is it's just a marvel it's the fact that some of the dishes that were chosen and and i i thank you all of you who contributed to this book and you for you know writing all those wonderful write-ups that that really did put us in touch with where in culinary history these dishes um had their effect Thank you. I learned so much working on this I'm book. Sure. I'm I mean, sure. that's why I took it. And, um, you know, I'm grateful to everyone who contributed so that I got to go down 247 rabbit holes that Ooh, were yeah. delicious. And thanks for Fiden Press for sticking by this one. This oh was great. Okay. And thank you for listening. This has been another Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.